Well, we're in the midst of our uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount, and the passage before us today is all about the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Now, I wonder how the average person on the street might describe the relationship between the two. Uh, I wonder how each of us would describe it. I didn't grow up going to church, um, but when I was a kid, I still remember being taught that the Old Testament is full of a lot of, you know, good stuff, but also like violence and contradictions and stuff like that. And part of the reason why Jesus came was uh, to correct those mistakes, right? I wonder if any of you were taught similar things or even believe similar things. I've heard other views like this, that the Old Testament is all about externals while the New Testament is all about the heart, that the Old Testament contains a lot of man-made laws of religion and rules, while the New Testament largely dispenses of any rules and is all about a relationship with God. Have any of you heard stuff like this before? Right, Um, but is this true? Does the Old Testament neglect the importance of the heart? Does the New Testament do away with rules? And perhaps most importantly, how did Jesus describe his own relationship with the Hebrew Scriptures? Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning on verse 17 and going through 26? Now, today is going to be more of a teaching sermon uh, than a preaching sermon, and I'll make time for a few questions at the end. If you you feel like you haven't gotten your fill of preaching, fear not. My more emotional brothers, Fumi and John, will be back up soon, all right? Uh, But... um, as we come today to uh, Matthew 5:17 and following, something I want us to notice is that the focus of the sermon has shifted to Jesus himself. The preacher has become the subject matter. The sermon began in a third-person voice with the Beatitudes, right? With Jesus' beautiful description of ultimate well-being, of God-centered flourishing. You are the, sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Begins in the third person. Next, it moves to the second person, speaking to the people of God directly, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And now here it shifts to an authoritative first-person voice about why Jesus has come and what he says to them. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? So what kind of teacher is this that has the authority to speak in this way without being presumptuous or blasphemous as if his very utterance settles the matter of interpreting the law? Now, this is an underlying question that runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll come back to it at the very end of the sermon, because the people are struck by the very same thing. And it necessarily leads to a second question, and one which some of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries had no doubt been asking, which is, where does Jesus stand in relation to the Hebrew Scriptures that came before him? Does his authoritative teaching contain sort of an implicit denial of the law and the prophets. Jesus tackles this question head on. He says in verse 17, do not think. Can you turn to your neighbors and say, not think. think. 
Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was a shorthand for the entire Old Testament from Moses to Malachi in our Bibles. I have not come to abolish them, Jesus explains, but to fulfill them. Turn to your neighbor and say, to fulfill them. And then he goes even further, for truly I say to you, notice again the authoritative first person voice, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. So this is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, just in case they were reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation, right? Not a dot. This is the smallest mark in the Hebrew alphabet in case anyone was reading the original. So not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So contrary to the insinuation of Jesus's critics, he was accused even before this in the gospel of Mark of being a Sabbath breaker. But Jesus was not an abolisher of the law. He was an accomplisher. He was not a destroyer of the prophets. He was a fulfiller. The Greek word to fulfill, pleirosai, literally means to make full or to complete, like filling up a cup, bringing its purpose to completion. And the concept of fulfillment is crucial to the theology of the gospel of, of Matthew. In fact, it's already been used seven times in the first four chapters. But what does it mean? How does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, we could preach 20 sermons on that topic and not get to the bottom of the matter. But for this morning, I want to briefly highlight four answers that are important for us to know as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures through his authoritative teaching, clarifying the very heart of the law and the prophets. Now, someone might ask, well, isn't Jesus contradicting the law here in verse 21? Look there with me. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, is he not setting aside the Old Testament in order to establish his own rules? Doesn't that seem to be what he's doing? It may look that way on the surface. But upon closer reading, we find that this is not so. Now, of course, uh, the law of Moses does prohibit murder and adultery. Would it, but it would be absurd to think that the Sermon on the Mount is promoting these behaviors, wouldn't it? Is it not the case, rather, that Jesus is calling attention to the inner roots of the problem? Murder is rooted in unchecked anger. Adultery is rooted in lust of the heart. So if Jesus is not contradicting the law of Moses, who does he seem to be challenging? When Jesus declares, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's not contradicting the Old Testament, but is instead challenging the interpretive tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. When they would teach on the law and prophets, they would talk about what was heard, what was said, what was passed on. And if you read the gospel of Matthew closely, you'll notice that Jesus uses a different phrase whenever he's quoting scripture. He doesn't say, you have heard that it was said. Jesus simply says, it is written. It is written. It's a totally different phrase in Greek. In fact, he's just used this, this phrase three consecutive times when being tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, 7, and 10. 
And it's there when the devil tempts him to turn the stones into bread that Jesus sets forth his true view of the Hebrew scriptures, right? Because he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. According to Jesus, the Old Testament comes from the mouth of God. It's the word of God. Therefore, far from diminishing the importance of the law, Jesus declares in Matthew 5.19 that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to relax a commandment was to make it easier than God intended it to be, to diminish the scope of its actual authority. Now, we usually think of the scribes and Pharisees as being stricter than necessary, don't we? But that's only partially true on many topics, such as swearing oaths, such as providing for your elderly parents, or on divorce and remarriage, which was surprisingly widespread in this day. They were teaching people that there are convenient ways around the law. In contrast, notice that Jesus' teaching on these topics in the gospel is not about making the commandments more manageable. I mean, we know that Jesus was full of grace, right? But when he teaches on these topics, he gets to the heart of the matter. He says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this statement must have been both shocking and deflating to his first century audience. Because they all thought that the scribes and Pharisees were the moral aristocrats. They were the elite. They were the most righteous men on earth. The Pharisees had calculated that the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions for a total of 613 laws. And they made it their life goal to keep all of them. Now that sounds pretty intense to me. (laughs) But according to Jesus... We must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. How are we going to do that? Well, Jesus calls us to surpass them not in intensity, but in kind. Let me explain. I don't know how the division of chores works in your house, but uh, in the Bodo house, it's my job usually uh, to do the dishes. And it's a job I don't really mind. I actually kind of like it. Uh, So whether it's cleaning up after dinner or after Nora bakes something delicious or after we've hosted a gathering, there's just something about the simplicity of the job that I enjoy. Can anybody relate to that? It's just nice to start a job and then you can see that it's finished afterward, right? But imagine for a minute that I was obsessed with appearances and made washing the dishes like way more complicated than it needed to be. Right? Imagine that I spent hours meticulously washing a few coffee cups, scrubbing and waxing and buffing them, only for Carissa to pull them out of the cupboard the next day, to find that I had neglected the most important part. I had failed to wash the inside of the cups. How ridiculous would that be? The outside of the cups all pristine and sparkly, but on the inside, coffee stains and moldy milk. Now, this whole idea may sound absurd to you, but according to Jesus, that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing with the commandments. 
In Matthew 23, 25, and 26, Jesus warns them directly. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites are play actors. They're people who want to show something that they're not. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean as well. In other words, despite all their efforts to keep up appearances for the sake of impressing others and probably themselves too, they had neglected the heart of God's commandments. If only they would have focused on the inside, Jesus said, the outside would have been washed as well. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, guys. The heart of the matter. Jesus' fulfill but not abolish illustration here in Matthew 5.21 And the others that follow are not about making things even harder. They're about the inside of the cup. In order to obey these teachings, I think we can all admit we're going to need more than willpower and scrupulosity. We're going to need nothing short of the power of the Holy Spirit. We've heard about avoiding murder and adultery, but how can we be expected to have self-control over our anger and over our lust? Only the Spirit of God can transform us from the inside out. As John Stott puts it, we must not imagine, as some do, that we have the Spirit and can dispense with the law. For what the Spirit does in our hearts is precisely write God's law there. So the Spirit... Law, righteousness, heart, they all belong together. We'll say much more about the role of the Spirit in the weeks to come. But for now, let me come to point number two. Second, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by living a sinless life. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He accomplished this by dying on the cross in our place tearing the curtain that separated sinful man from a holy God. But in the Old Testament, in order for a sacrifice to be valid, the animal had to be spotless, right? Without blemish. Likewise, Jesus Christ was morally spotless, without blemish. Jesus was the only man who ever lived a sinless life. Not only that, Jesus was born without a fallen nature. Being incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, therefore, the angel Gabriel declared to Mary, the child to be born within you will be called holy, the Son of God. Luke 1.35. Hebrews 4.15 puts it even more plainly. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. That's why John the Baptist is initially reluctant to baptize Jesus, right? But Jesus replies that to do so is fitting in order to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill. Plerosai. There's our word again. Matthew 3.15. Now remember, just a few minutes ago, Dr. Sarah Hall gave us this excellent image of the Eiffel Tower made out of Legos. And we might say that the fulfillment of the Lego instructions is the actual structure of the Eiffel Tower, right? Likewise, she reminded us that the Old Testament law 
It is more like instructions than a list of rules. This is something she taught us a few weeks ago. And that the perfect life of Jesus shows us what the instructions were pointing to all along. Bible scholar Jonathan Pennington uh, helpfully defines righteousness in Matthew as the whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. So Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, not by setting aside the law and prophets, but rather through his perfect obedience to the divine instructions. Third, Jesus fulfilled the typology of the Old Testament. Turn to your neighbor and say, typology. (laughs) Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the Old Testament contains numerous motifs, archetypes, and offices, like the office of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus perfectly fulfills everything that those offices imperfectly stood for. Our reading from Hebrews 10 begins in this way. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, which it says is found in Christ. This does not simply mean that Christ fulfilled the predictions of the Old Testament, although he certainly did that, but prediction is actually a subset of fulfillment. Fulfillment is a bigger concept, right? I myself am convinced that if you put the greatest literary minds in history in a room together, in Shakespeare and Dante and Faulkner and Hemingway, they would never be able to come up with something that had even a fraction of the symbolic resonance that Jesus has with the Hebrew scriptures. They would not be able to do it. Jesus is the high priest and the perfect sacrifice, right? Jesus is the good shepherd and the lamb of God. His death accomplished a new exodus from our bondage to sin and a new Passover for the angel of death. Jesus, his own presence was greater than the temple because he was truly Emmanuel, God with us. All these things were shadows. Jesus Christ is the reality. I remember when I came on InterVarsity staff, I asked the staff from Harvard how he came to know Jesus. And he said that when he read the Gospels in college, he realized that either the Gospel writers were uber geniuses or else all this is really true. Has anybody ever noticed the the metaphorical resonances in the Gospel and say, this is too much for a human mind to deposit in this story? This is the Word of God. It was written by no man. It was written by man, but it was inspired by God. It had to be. They couldn't have dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's in that way. Do you want to see a clear example of Jesus fulfilling the typology of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew? I'm glad you do. (laughs) Flip to his temptation in Matthew 4. Flip back. Because after Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, Matthew 4.1 says that he is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where is the Spirit leading him? To be tempted by the devil for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now, what's the purpose of this? And why does the Spirit lead Jesus into such a precarious situation? Well, the answer might seem mysterious to us, but the symbolic connections would not have been lost on the first century Jewish Jewish audience of the Gospel of Matthew. Remember that the people of Israel also passed through the waters in the Exodus. 
that they were led up by the pillar of cloud and fire into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years. But guys, that generation failed the test. Even Moses was not able to enter the promised land. And to make this connection even stronger in Matthew 4, three times the devil tempts Jesus and three times he quotes from Deuteronomy, which is a sacred text that God gave the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. So the typology could not be any plainer. Jesus, the true Israelite, is reliving the story of Israel in his own life, and he's getting it right this time, fulfilling all righteousness. And this isn't the first time in Matthew that Jesus relives some aspect of the story of Israel. His time as a refugee in Egypt, for example, was also a recapitulation of their their story. As Matthew 2.15 attests, this was to fulfill, there's our word again, pleirosai, What the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. The law and the prophets were signposts, but Jesus, he's the thing signified. It would be absurd if the foretold Messiah denied the validity of the signposts. On the contrary, he is their fulfillment. Fourth, then I'll open it up for a couple of questions. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by inaugurating the new covenant. Now, when we think about the word law, um, we think about rules and legal systems. But to the first century Jew, the word law evoked God's covenant with them, God's relationship with them which included rules and restrictions, but was much more than that. Therefore, fulfilling the law and the prophets was only partially about Jesus teaching and living the rules. He also had to inaugurate the new covenant. The cup had to fill up and overflow. The new covenant was not a contradiction of the law or the prophets, but an image of their completion and fulfillment. As Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. In fact, God had foretold of this uh, transition in Jeremiah 31, which you just heard read a few minutes ago. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. If only there was some heart in the Old Testament, huh? The Lord goes on to say that I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And God promises that in this new covenant, he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And brothers and sisters, gloriously, gloriously, we are living in these days. Right, We are living, according to Jesus, in the days that many prophets longed to see and did not see. Right, We're living in the days when Jesus has declared all foods clean. Mark 7, 19, in the age when our distinctions have been relativized, right? Because there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. She's celebrating back there. 
We're living in the days when there's no more need, right? For the blood of bulls and goats to be continually offered every year. You just get a sense of the weariness in the Hebrews 10 reading, don't you? Hebrews 10, 9 and 10 declares that he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And that, and that, uh, And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are living in the age when we can go straight to God the Father, through God the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. To not only confess our sins, but to speak to Him as our Abba, as our Daddy. How can this be? How can this be? Hadn't Jesus said that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished? Yes, but notice this actually isn't a statement that the law and the prophets will never pass away. It's an affirmation that its full intention must be realized. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. By his sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus atoned for our sins and fulfilled the sacrificial system, fulfilled the ceremonial law. I'm not nervous that there's no temple in Jerusalem anymore, are you? Right, because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sins once for all. And having risen from the dead, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit upon the church as a sign of the new covenant. It's the Holy Spirit who writes the enduring moral law on our hearts and gives us the power to obey. In other words, there are parts of the Old Testament that Jesus has already accomplished, right? Like the ceremonial law. There are other parts that endure, like the moral law. And there are some parts that actually await his second coming on that day when according to the prophets... There will indeed be a new heavens and a new earth. And as a shocking twist, Jesus would later say in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, the teaching of Jesus will have an eternal staying power that even the law and the prophets don't have. It's an incredible thing and blasphemous if not true. Can you fathom the authority of the man who was uttering these things in that context? So let me summarize and open it up for just a few questions. We've said that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in four ways. Through his, uh, his authoritative teaching into the heart of the law. Through his sinless life. That he fulfilled the Old Testament uh, 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 typologically reliving the story of Israel and by inaugurating the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of the old. And I just want to say, in uncovering these truths, we can also put to rest several misunderstandings that Christians commonly have, that Jesus was trying to maybe sever himself from his Jewish roots. We can put that to rest, that Jesus taught that the Hebrew scriptures were somehow wrong and needed correction. We can put that to rest, right? Amen? That the Old Testament was a religion of externals that was not focused on the heart. Jesus teaches that the heart of the law and the prophets is the heart. We can put to rest the idea that the Old Covenant demanded ethical obedience while the New Covenant does not. We can put that to rest, amen? 
And perhaps most importantly, we can put to rest the notion that we have any hope of following and obeying Jesus apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that's poured upon us in the new covenant. We'll say more about that in the coming weeks, but for now I just want to open it up for a few questions and Fumi will run around with the microphone. He doesn't share our fallen nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, oh, man. Um, good thing I have all the answers. <laughs> no, just joking. I mean, I think that's a really hard question, but I think there's a way in which... Yes. I'm going to repeat. I'll repeat the question. Okay, please, repeat, repeat the question. it. Yeah. How can Jesus be tempted in every way that we are if he does not share our fallen nature? Yeah. I think there's a way in which um, Adam and Eve, our participation in Adam and Eve as our representative heads as humanity, is not just them falling, it's us falling. You know, we don't just say, oh, dang it, it was Adam and Eve. If, if only if it would have been Jay and Rachel, it would have worked out, right? You know, so there's a sense in which um, they're living for us the sin and weakness that we would have lived even in that unfallen moment. Um, and Jesus, as our, as our new federal head of the new covenant, has lived the righteous life that we could never live and made it available to many. Um, I think the best text I could think of for that would maybe be Romans 5. But I, um, I also think um, there, the um, New Testament seems to view a correspondence still that even though we have fallen hearts and lives, so we're prone to wander, there's still enough... Um, uh, enough, um, I guess, um, of, a, of a sense of connection with Jesus uh, resisting temptation, that we still have the ab- ability to resist temptation. We can't just blame it on the devil. We can't just blame it on our flesh. And so uh, it seems to be saying that Jesus was put in extreme circumstances. And I, I even think of Adam and Eve. They were told, you may freely eat of any tree in the garden. And their, their temptation came in a garden paradise. And there was just one tree they couldn't eat from. Jesus is in the desert, right? You know, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And, um, and so uh, it seems like Jesus went even further. But I think it's a good question. And one way that we're different, I think, um, that, that Jesus, part of the reason why he can be the new Adam, I think. Mm-hmm. We got one from Timothy here. I, um, there's something in Bible school when I was uh, back in Hong Kong. Um, it was like um, the teachers in my church used to like glorify when the Old Testament, you know, um, that God killed um, the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And also, you know, when Moses crossed the Red Sea uh, using flood, you know, flooded the Egyptian armies. And this was a question that I had for a long time. And I was thinking, you know, these men are fulfilling their jobs or innocent babies who are killed uh, because of the wrath of God. So how can, as a, as a congregant, as a believer, how can I justify what I've seen in the Old Testament about these kind of things that happened? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Timothy. And I think one of the reasons why we want to distance ourselves from the Old Testament, right, is because of some of these disturbingly violent passages. 
Um, I think a really important um, distinction, and I think that, that Jesus would want to make, and we'll come to this in Matthew 7, is that in all of these instances, God is the judge and we're not. So there's a difference. Um, I, I think sometimes we have like a, um, like a humanistic perspective, and we say, well, I know that it would be really wrong for me to do these things, but God actually never goes against his own righteous character. Right? The God who judged the Canaanites was the same God who came in the flesh and died for the sins of the world. Right? So we don't have that kind of purity of intention. And so rather than sort of like putting God on the dock and say, like, how dare you behave badly by human standards, God actually, his, his scripture you know, uh, testifies to his own righteousness and throws the question back at us. Now that doesn't mean that it, it's an easy matter, but I'll just take, for example, in Genesis... When Abraham learns that God plans to judge some of these nations, God says, but I'm not going to do it yet because their, you know, uh, their wickedness had, has not yet reached its full measure. And, and we're thinking, oh, that's kind of weird. He actually waits several generations and they're sacrificing their children and they're oppressing the poor and they're doing all these things so that there's a correspondence between God's judging activity and his actual righteous nature. So that's just like a little window that we get into how those things can correspond. But I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, uh, on, on this side of the new covenant uh, and on this side of Jesus, we know that it's God's will for us to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So there's no enduring command hanging over the church that, you know, we need to make sure that we, you know, do something violent over here. Otherwise, the kingdom of God can't advance. In fact, when the church has done that, is when they've wandered from the way of Jesus, right? Um, let's do one more question, if anybody has one. Oh, there's one with Michael. So it says in uh, Matthew 5 that um, not an iota will be erased until everything's been accomplished. So does that imply that after everything's been accomplished, things will be removed? And then as a follow-up question, uh, what is it that Jesus is talking about to be accomplished? Yeah, yeah, amen. Um, I tried to go into that a little bit. Um, uh, so um, what does it mean that not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished? Well, we talked about how fulfilling is like um, a filling up, a bringing of something to its completion. And so there's a way in which uh, the sacrificial system with animals and, and all this sort of stuff pointed forward to Jesus, which was the reality. In fact, I, I would say theologically, the only reason why animal sacrifice was efficacious was because Jesus is the Lamb of God who, who was slain before the foundations of the world, right? Their efficacy rests in what Jesus did on the cross, right? And so um, having accomplished that on the cross, there's no longer any need for that because that cup has been filled up, so to speak. But there are other parts of the laws. There are things that speak to different times, sort of different dispensations, so to speak. And, you know, Jesus has not yet returned. So the heavens and the earth have not passed away. So we tend to take that as, as sort of meaning like one big chunk. Like we can never do away with ceremonial laws until all the other laws are accomplished. But Jesus is saying uh, none of these things will be able to pass away until there's that... There, there's that um, uh, God-ordained transitional moment to the actual reality, the thing that the thing was signifying. And so I, I think that's, that's what he's, he's after. And 
Some of that, you know, we're living on the other side of. Some of that we're living in the midst of. And some of that's still to come. Anyway, if anybody wants to talk more about this afterward, I'd love to do that. Um, But let's stand. And I'm going to invite the prayers of the people leader up here. And let me just say a brief prayer for you. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that your son Jesus um, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Lord, I, I thank you especially now as we stand in your presence, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that you lived a perfect life and died in our place. And Lord, um, as we come convicted before your word in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, may we cast ourselves afresh upon your grace and mercy and ask for your Holy Spirit to lead us into all righteousness. Amen.